news of the gospel is that all of that blood that was spilled day after day, year after year, on the altar before God, was all pointing to Jesus Christ, who would spill His blood once and for all for sinners who come to Him in faith. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He fulfills all its laws. He keeps them perfectly. And He takes its penalty. So He he fulfills all the laws of the Old Covenant on behalf of His people. And He takes the penalty of the Old Covenant that His people deserved. The wrath of God. Death. He fulfills it all. And so it has no claim on His people. One of the purposes of the law was to reveal to the people the heart of God and to show to the people their own hearts, their own wickedness. It was kind of a a mirror that helped all of us, all people who would look at God's heart revealed in the law, it would help us recognize how far short of His glory we fall. Help us see our own sin and our need for Christ. But Romans 10 says that the end of the law is Christ. And so the, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, all of it is pointing us to Jesus. Getting us ready for Jesus. All of these things were, were signs pointing to Christ. And blood is central to it all. Penal substitutionary atonement is at the very foundation of what it means to be made right with God. Sin has to be punished. Life has to be given. And so Jesus, when He spills His blood, fulfills this requirement. He can set His people free from sin and death. You think of the Old Covenant and the sacrificial system like you do road signs. They're not to be confused with the destination itself. Right? If you've ever been on a trip somewhere, maybe you're going down south to, to Florida, maybe Miami, and you're on I-95 and you'll see signs, you know, Miami, 250 miles or whatever. You don't, you don't pull over underneath that sign and just settle down there. All right, we're here. No, no, that would defeat the purpose of the sign, even if you had a really nice picture of the beach on the billboard that you stopped next to, right? No, no, the purpose of the sign is to get you to the destination. And the purpose of the sacrificial system and of the ceremonial laws, one purpose in them, is to point us to Christ Jesus, the final sacrifice for sin, the true Messiah who is to come, the Messiah who conquers through crucifixion, by pouring out His blood. Blood is at the very heart of the Gospel. And if we try to empty the Gospel of blood, it loses its power. Blood is not in vogue in contemporary churches. Many come to a passage like this 
and immediately want to jump to what are legitimate applications about reconciliation in relationships within the church, cross-cultural relationships, racial reconciliation, all good things to consider. We want to be a people, as the people of God, we want to be at peace with one another. We want to maintain peace. But to elevate those things to the primary position in the passage is to take a misstep. See, the, the primary teaching in this passage is that Jesus Christ has purchased that peace that exists between His people. That Jesus Christ has purchased the peace that exists between His people and God. And if we empty the passage of its blood, we, we miss the point. If we empty the Bible of blood, it loses any saving power. It's funny how probably some of you, even as we walked through service today and we sang all these songs about blood and we're talking about blood now, have probably gone, man, we're sounding like really primitive Baptists. All this blood talk. Move it along. But blood is at the very center of our faith. In 1955, Billy Graham went to Cambridge to preach a series of sermons at the university. And before his arrival, the English media had a field day. They expressed disdain and skepticism all over the papers. But one editorial even asked this, What in the world is this backwoods American fundamentalist doing coming to talk to our best and brightest? Intimidated by the advanced criticism, Graham nervously prepared his message for the crowd, which would be made up of philosophy professors and doctors and theologians and numerous other intellectual elites from the community. He mined books and papers for cultural and philosophical illustrations. He did not want to look like a rube before such a discriminating audience. So the first four nights, he bombed. The halls were packed, but the response was tepid. His preaching did not elicit any significant response. And so on the last night, Graham decided that he would ditch the highbrow quotes and the intellectual spice, and that he would just preach on the blood. Anglican pastor Dick Lucas recalled, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel sitting on the floor, and next to me was a professor of divinity on one side, and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other. Now, both of these were good men in many ways, but they were completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And that night, dear Billy got up and started at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible. And he talked about every single blood sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing through all of great St. Mary's, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And both of my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock and astonishment, about 400 men and women stayed wanting to commit their lives to Christ. Lucas later met a young man at Cambridge, a graduate, and was sharing tea. And he asked the question, 
where did Christian things begin for you? Cambridge, 1955, came the reply. When? Billy Graham. What night? The last night. How did it happen? The young man thought for a moment. He says, all I remember is that I walked out of Great St. Mary's and for the first time in my life, I was thinking, Christ really died for me. Non-Christian, you may be far off from God, but His blood is able to bring you near. Christian things can start for you today. Believe the Gospel. Put your faith in Christ. Church, let us never move on from the Gospel because we want to be really impressive to our peers, because we, we want to be viewed in, in some way as an intellectual. Let us be happy to exult in the reality that it's by the blood of Jesus that our sins are washed away. Let us never forget that it was the blood of Christ, is the blood of Christ that makes us right with God and right with one another. That we are more wicked than we ever dared dream, but because Jesus shed His blood, we are more loved and accepted in Him than we ever dared hope. Let us not forget as we come together week after week and we raise the cup of the fruit of the vine that that represents the blood of Christ, that blood that was spilled out of Emmanuel's veins so that sinners plunged beneath the flood can lose all their guilty stains. Let us remember that we are drinking, looking back to the author and finisher of our faith. We're looking back to the cross, back to what it costs to save us. Let us be overwhelmed by that grace. We lift that cup. We look back to the purchase of our salvation and we look forward to its culmination. When Christ comes a second time not to bleed, but to bring judgment on all who continue in rebellion against Him. It turns to bring a new world where everything sad is untrue. And all is as it should be. When the peace that He's created in the church spills out into all of creation, do not forget the blood. Jesus' blood is at the very heart of our faith. And it's the means by which, as we have already said, that we have been brought peace with God. Look with me at verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and so that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, 
thereby killing the hostility. You can notice that Jesus doesn't just put us at peace. He is our peace. He is peace itself. He's the Prince of Peace. Peace is not a program, but a person. Jesus is our peace. Not just peace for the Gentile, as if those unbelieving Jews had always been at peace with God. No, they need reconciliation too, Jew and Gentile alike. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All people are in a hostile relationship with God and can only have peace with Him by way of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. I want to impress this on you once more because it's sometimes wrongly taught or thought that some people, by virtue of their ethnicity, specifically Jewish people, are automatically reconciled to God. That they can be saved outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, that is a satanic lie. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. No one. We all need the blood of Christ to atone for our sins. He is our peace. And He's reconciled Jew and Gentile together in one body. All by His grace. Salvation is all of grace. I think this realization that we can't achieve peace ourselves ought to lead us to a profound humility. It's a strange thing when people who have everything they have, recognize everything that they have comes from God. And they don't have anything to boast in. It's a strange thing when they become self-righteous and arrogant. As if we in some way contributed to our salvation, or what God has done in us. Friends, the Gospel ought to lead us to profound humility. The fact that we could not make peace with God. That it took Him giving us new hearts and a resurrection for us to have life, for us to be right with Him. Who can puff out their chest next to the cross of Christ? All the ground is level there. I think too often we act like the publican and the Pharisee. Right? The Pharisee stands up and says, Thank you that you haven't made me like other men. You haven't made me like this tax collector. All that we would remember, all that we have comes from God's hand. And rejoice in our salvation. The grace of God should lead us to humility and also to confidence. Recognize, believer, that God no longer relates to you hostily. You see that? Verse 16, Jesus, in His death, by His blood, 
by being killed, kills the hostility. A little ironic, isn't it? Jesus kills the hostility by his death. And it also shows us something else. Right? We do not automatically exist in right relationship with God, that, that there is hostility between us and God apart from Christ. But here's the flip side of that. When we are in Christ, God relates to us with peace. There's peace between us and God. And this is not just kind of our contemporary idea of peace where that just means the cessation of war. This is peace, meaning everything is as it should be. We are at peace with God, meaning we have dynamic, vibrant, happy relationship with God. That God is, is not disappointed in us. We're calling us to constantly measure up to some standard. We, we don't have to earn the love of God because we already have it in Christ. We don't have to earn His love because He's not hostile to us. We are at peace with Him. That means we can confidently and joyfully call Him our Father. That relationship means that we don't, we're not, not trying to get Him to love us. If you have children, you know that they can't earn your affection because they already have it. This is what Jesus has done for us in shedding His blood. He's made us right with God so that God relates to us only with peace. With peace not only with God, but with one another. That was kind of that first result of what Christ has done in spilling His blood. You'll notice there are two results in the text. So Jesus spills His blood and He tears down the dividing wall of hostility, which we're coming to. But, but two of the results are, one result is peace with God, and the other result is peace with one another, vertical and horizontal. And so he has brought us also into peace with one another. Look at, at verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. I think oftentimes we underestimate just how intense the hatred between Jew and Gentile could be. Just how yawning the gap of division was. We have a, a neat kind of illustration of it in Acts chapter 10. Now remember in Acts 10, Peter is kind of hungry, and he's, he has a, a dream or a vision, and in his dream or vision, there's kind of a, like a picnic blanket, and on the picnic blanket are a bunch of unclean animals that a, a good Jew like Peter would, would never, ever eat. And then as it comes down, God gives Peter that holiest of commands. Right? Some of you, it's your life verse, right? Rise. Kill and eat, right? And Peter says, you know, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm, I ain't doing that. And the vision happens a few more times. And, and then God teaches Peter the lesson of his vision. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. And while Peter's still kind of puzzling together how he should understand all of that, 
And the Holy Spirit says, hey, some guys are going to show up and you need to go with them. A guy named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. And so they show up and, and Peter goes to Cornelius' house. And I imagine this had to come off kind of awkwardly. This is what he says in verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why did you send for me? It's like a really great opening line at a dinner party, isn't it? Hey, I would not be here under any other circumstance. It took an act of God for me to be here. So what do you want? And Cornelius says, look, I was praying, an angel showed up and told me to send for you. What is it that God has to say to me and my household and those who are present through you? And Peter proceeds to preach the Gospel. He tells of the substitutionary death of Christ. Of His victorious resurrection. And then, something Peter didn't expect happens. Those who are listening, believe. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have a, a second kind of Pentecost. And Peter says, who, who can keep these men and women, these people who are believing from being baptized? And he baptizes them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he proclaims this at verse 43 at the end of chapter 10. He says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, through Jesus' name. It really is an incredible truth. But then Peter returns to Jerusalem and is met with confusion and some incredulity. Now the apostles, this is Acts 11, verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judah heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Like, what are you doing here, Peter? Our people, they don't get together with their people. You've, you've seen West Side Story. We're the Jets. They're the Sharks. We don't, we don't cross that line. Peter then tells him what happened and how God has included the salvation of the Gentiles in his plan for the world. You see, Paul has not written the epistles yet. He's not yet written Galatians 6, 15 through 16, which we'll read in a second. And so the idea is many of the Jews are thinking of salvation in terms of it is only for the Jews rather than from the Jews and to the nations. In some, there's that controversy that Paul speaks to in Galatians. Do you have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. You have to believe in order to be part of the people of God. And this is what he says in Galatians 6, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, 
nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. And so we see that what is happening in the book of Acts and what Paul was saying is happening in Ephesians, or what has happened, is he says, all of the things that used to divide you have been abolished, have been undone. It's important that we recognize the division and the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile was founded primarily upon God's instruction. Right? God was the one who gave his people the command to be distinct, to be holy, to live lives that were other than, to not mix with the nations around them. They were to be unique in their dress, unique in the way that they ate food, in the way they cooked food, everything. They were to be God's holy people, a sign to the nations. And now, that time of being assigned to the nations is being fulfilled. God had planned to reveal His Messiah through Israel. And now that He's done that, Paul is saying, it's fulfilled. That those rules are no longer in force. Now the Messiah is revealed in true Israel, in the church, in those who believe. This tension that existed, the divine law that split Jew from Gentile, Paul pictures it for us as a wall. He's talking about the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances. He pictures it for us as a wall, and this is such a wonderful metaphor because it would have immediately conjured up in the minds of his listeners an actual wall that existed in the temple of Jerusalem. Now you've heard of this. There's a wall in the temple, there was, that separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts and the sanctuary. So the Jewish historian Josephus described the wall this way. He said it was four and a half feet tall, and it had warning signs which were posted all around it in both Latin and Greek. Two of the warning signs have actually been discovered, and they read as follows. No foreigner is to enter within the railing and enclosure of the temple. Whoever is caught shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. This is the kind of division that existed between Jew and Gentile. And what Paul is telling us here Jesus has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace. This is quite incredible. Again, we're not, we're not saying that you throw out the law, that it's bad. The law is good, but its purpose of pointing us to Christ has been fulfilled. And therefore, Paul can speak of it as being abolished. Now, now, don't get tripped up here because some of you are going, doesn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Right? What he's saying there is not that the Old Covenant is going to be in force forever, 
but that he didn't come to contradict the revelation that God had already given. Right? Jesus never corrects the law. He corrects the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. And then he fulfills the law. And thus, puts it out of operation. And of course, we still learn the Ten Commandments and we still adhere to those moral laws which transcend time and culture because they reflect to us the very character of God. But things such as the sacrificial system and the ceremonial system, all those things are, are no longer. They were to point us to Christ. The sign is no longer needed because the destination has been arrived at. Paul brings this up in particular because it was this division that was at the root of all the divisions between Jew and Gentile. He uproots their division by tearing down the wall. This is what Jesus does. What this means is that in Christ, enemies and enmity have been eliminated. And so this principle that our in-Christness puts us at peace with one another stretches out into whatever relational strains we might be feeling today. So our anger, our distrust, our apathy, our exhaustion in relationships, all of it is taken away by Christ. It's taken down in His flesh. Jesus' blood takes away everything that would separate us from other Christians. So Paul is, is deploying this argument to defeat any reliance upon pride or privilege or ethnicity or our membership in a particular group might give us. Friends, Paul is saying, in Christ we have peace with one another. So anything that would set you at war with one another, any other identity, it takes a subordinate role to your in-Christness. Our depravity is not just skin deep, and neither is Jesus' atonement. God's election of His people does not correspond to our nation of origin or the color of our skin. It is the cross which is the dividing line of humanity, not cultural background. Jesus, by the pouring out of His blood, levels the sinful prejudices that we have erected. Jesus raises the walls of hostility that we might raise up so that He might raise up not a Jewish people, not an Asian people, not a white people, not an Indian people, not a black people, not a Latino people, but a new people. One new man. One new humanity is where you could translate that verse. I love Dr. Marita calls this new people, which is the church. He says, red people. I like that. He says, let us be part of a red church a group of people from every tribe and tongue and nation that has been redeemed by the torn apart Christ 
who spilled his red blood that we may be reconciled to God and to one another. Red people. Maybe one day coming through a red door as I continue my push to have the front door painted red. I don't think I'm ever winning that one. Friends, Jesus has brought peace. And the answer to all of the relational conflict that exists within the church is the blood of Christ. We who have been forgiven much forgive much. There can be no peace where there is not forgiveness. And so we forgive as we have been forgiven. We pursue forgiveness. We pursue unity with one another. And so when potential division arises, we have hard conversations. When we sin against one another, we are quick to repent and quick to forgive. Brothers and sisters, the sins that we are tempted to hold against one another are the very sins for which Jesus died. How dare we undermine the blood of Christ and blaspheme the name of Christ so that we might hold on to our grudges? It must be a people who forgive. Christ has called us into unity. He is our peace. And so let us be a church that pursues unity, that lives out the reality that we have peace with God and with one another. Let Rockfish Valley Baptist Church stand as testimony to the truth of the gospel to the truth that Jesus' blood really does wash away sin. That Jesus' blood really does make sinners new. That because of Jesus' blood, we can have hope that all of our sins are washed away. And we are united as God's people. Let us be a people that sing, This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross, forgiven and at peace with God and one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we give ourselves to it and dig into it, we, we find diamonds. Find these treasures that you have put for us there that tell us about who you are and how we are, ought to live. We ask that you would turn our knowledge of you into worship and into you put it into our behaviors. But we thank you that you are good. That your power is made perfect in our weaknesses. We give you praise and honor this morning. We thank you that 
because of the blood of Christ. We have peace. We can call you Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.